Hey, this is Dewey from Pure Pleasure on Jabberjaw Media. I wanted to tell you guys about the Patreon for the show. It's called the Pleasure Seekers Club, and there's two levels. There's the $5 level and the $10 level. And all this is, guys, is to help support the show, help support the cost of putting the show out, um, you know, time spent uh, building the show, hosting costs, travel costs to do the in-person interviews that you guys like so much. Um, it all costs money. And I always try to find the best deal for sure uh, because I do have a day job as well. But having that support on the Patreon is definitely going to help bring more in-person interviews, more travel, more uh, updated uh, graphics, hosting, websites, all that stuff. So, um, And if you like the show, $5 a month or $10 a month really helps out. I know it's kind of uh, an interesting thing with the Patreon when something's already free. Uh, but it is always going to be free. But if you want to support the show a little bit more, I'd absolutely appreciate it. Uh, you can pay either $5 or $10 a month. We'll try to do some special things for the patrons as well as we go. Um, but it's just a way to support the show in a different way. And uh, like I said, I really appreciate you guys coming back week after week. That's the most important thing I can ask for. So definitely go over and check out the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Podcast. Once again, that is patreon.com slash Podcast. Sign up today and join the community and help out the show. Keep it growing. And I thank you so much. Hey, this is Doc Coyle, host of the X-Man Podcast and part of the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network. The X-Man Podcast is where I talk to professionals in the music world and other creative industries about the challenges and transitions of leaving monumental ventures. This podcast is for those passionate and driven 20 to 30-somethings at a crossroad trying to figure out what's next. Listen and subscribe at JabberjawMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Peer Pleasure with Dewey Halpas on Adobe Radio and Jabberjaw Media. I am Dewey, your host with the most, bringing you great content year after year. I can now say that this is our last episode of our first year of production, and uh, I am super stoked for this. Um, it is episode 51, uh, but we did have some two-part episodes uh, double episodes throughout the year, so it is actually our last episode of our first year. Next week's going to be the first of the new uh, the year two, and uh, that one's going to be with uh, Brandon Canty from Fugazi. So this is going to be the second member of Fugazi on the show. Uh, we had Ian McKay uh, back in episode, I believe, 23? 
Uh, I'm not sure on that. I'll have to go check. But Ian McKay was on the show. Brendan is coming on the show uh, next week. And this week on our last episode of our first year is Dessa from Doomtree. Uh, and she's a solo artist as well. Uh, one of my favorite musicians, uh, one of my favorite wordsmiths, to put that out there. She is absolutely incredibly, incredibly intelligent. She can turn a phrase like no one I've ever seen. I mean, she is uh, very well spoken through her poetry, spoken word, you know, watch all kinds of different events. And then being a hip-hop artist with Doomtree, I mean, it's just absolutely crazy what she comes up with. And then watching her go from Doomtree to solo artist, and then from solo artist to collaborating with, you know, uh, orchestras, collaborating with different musicians, and just putting herself in situations that may be uh, uncomfortable or a new idea that hasn't been done before, uh, especially in her realm. And it's just just amazing every time. And, and uh, it took a long time to get her on the show. She's been very busy this year with all kinds of things. It took about seven months. Um, but once we did, we had a great chat, and it was a lot of fun. So I do want to talk a little bit on this episode about our first year, looking back at our first year as a podcast, how things started a little bit, and the things we've gone through. Um, you know, the podcast, as some of you may know, started just as an idea um, after listening to a few podcasts while I was at work, um, not being very familiar with the, the medium, uh, looking at it and saying, hey, I think I could do that. And I went home and I talked to my wife and I brought up the idea and, and she was into it, but she said, you know, you come up with a lot of ideas and you don't always follow through with them, which is true. And we've talked about that. Some of my best friends that I grew up with talked about how we're the same that way, how we come up with all kinds of ideas. We're never satisfied living in the moment. We're always looking for the next thing. And sometimes that next thing never comes and we move on to something else and it just gets thrown by the wayside. So I was determined not to make that happen with this podcast. Uh, it was like, you know what, I've got to do this. So people talk about putting out, you know, record your first couple episodes and throw them away. Dan Carlin's one of them. Um, and Dan Carlin I actually booked on a podcast called Break It Down with Matt Carter and uh, a great episode there to check out. But seeing Dan Carlin talk about burning your first few episodes, I knew being a, the kind of person that is, goes from one extreme to another I was not capable of doing that and keep going. If I would have done that, I would have never continued. So I decided to, you know, reach out to people first, see if people would be even, even be interested in coming on the show. I had a brief career in music, and I knew a lot of people, but at the same time, who knew if they wanted to talk to me or if they were still doing, you know, their thing, if it would be interesting, if it would flop. So there's a lot of what ifs. So I reached out to about 25 people. I had a list of people that I wanted to talk to, uh, people that, you know, I figure, hey, they're close enough to me that they'd be willing to try it on a podcast that hadn't done anything yet. And I reached out to those 20, 25 people and got about 24 yeses and one no. And so that inspired me to start this podcast, which also terrified me because I was like, now I have to record this many interviews and put them out with them still being relevant, not being, you know, four months later cycling through. So then came the logistics of trying to work that out. So got the gear, made it happen, started the first interviews. Um, the first interview was actually with Matt Hopper, which actually ended up being the Christmas episode. And we just sat down and started talking. I had like three pages of notes, and I didn't use them. 
And at that point, I kind of realized what I needed to do and what I didn't need to do. And so from then on, you know, episode after episode, things got better and better. At the same time, I started putting out the first episodes I did as real episodes. I didn't burn any episodes. Um, And that was just because I knew if I started it and kept with it, it would happen. If I didn't, if I burned some episodes, I would have, you know, just kind of fallen by the wayside. So every episode, if you've been following the show and you've been listening to me this whole year, every episode you hear is one that, you know, there was no episodes other than that as far as, you know, got burned, trashed. We, knock on wood, did not have any episodes fail either as far as, you know, uh, the interview not being recorded, gear problems, anything like that. We were able to salvage, even the ones with poor audio, able to salvage them enough. And that's a big shout out to my cousin and his Pro Tools knowledge. So, after episode three, uh, episode three with Mike Kaminsky, um, or excuse me, episode three was thrice, I believe episode four was Mike Kaminsky. That's when I got hooked up with Jabberjaw. So Jabberjaw with Matt Carter uh, from the episode I talked about earlier with Dan Carlin, um, Break It Down podcast, Bad Christian podcast, Emery, reached out to him about the Jabberjaw network, and he set up a call with Mike Mowry, uh, who runs the network. Mike Mowry is an artist manager. He's just an entrepreneur of all sorts and uh, had a conference call to discuss the show. So on that conference call, I was sitting in the van, like I am now, talking on my phone. Now I'm talking on my mobile recorder. But sitting in this very van in this very spot. And that call changed my whole world, changed the the trajectory of the podcast, changed everything. So after that that initial conference call, joined Jabberjaw, and not a day has gone by that Mike and I don't talk, you know, at least once, if not most of the day on all kinds of ideas, how to make the show better, how to make the network better, just inspiring each other. And that relationship right there was one of the greatest things that I've accomplished uh, or been able to take part in through this podcast. I've gotten to talk to a lot of great people, a lot of heroes of mine, and they say never meet your heroes, but I think that's bullshit. I mean, everyone's a human being. Anyone can have a conversation. And that's what this show's about. And that's what I found out this show was about. I mean, this show, I didn't know how it was going to go. But time and time again, just having a conversation, person to person, man to man, man to woman, has been just an inspiring experience. Being able to talk to someone you looked up to your whole life, you know, your whole growing up life, your musical life, you know, whatever you're into, talking to one of those people, asking them whatever questions you want to ask, if you ask them questions at all, sometimes it just starts out as a conversation and goes and goes. You know, you you have three pages of questions and you ask none of them, but you just had a conversation with one of your heroes. Um, there's also been a lot of discovery on this on this podcast, discovering new comedians, new musicians. When a publicist throws someone my way, hey, check out this band. Would you be interested in working with them? Check out this comedian. It's I found a lot of really cool content this this whole year, you know, and then being a part of Jabberjaw, joining Adobe Radio, uh, getting, you know, more and more attention for the show, and then also traveling for the show, traveling to Podcast Movement this year with Mike Mowry and myself. Had a blast, met some amazing people, um, great artist managers, some record labels, a lot of podcasters, 
just really broadening my horizons and and being able to be a a force in the podcast scene uh something that's fairly i mean it's been going on for years of course but it's still fairly new and infantile as a genre and uh i'm really happy to be a part of it when i came into it and being able to you know say it's an established show you know being able to talk to people that you know not being nervous to reach out to people or feel inadequate to be able to speak to someone on a on a higher level um, has been a, a great gift, and I've really enjoyed that. So I just wanted to touch on this this stuff because it is the last episode of the year uh, for you know our first year. We're gonna have episode next week, 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 and after that. So you guys can always count on that. Consistency's been big for me. I don't take holidays as far as the show. I'm always prepared with another you know, another episode, uh, even if I'm not able to record that week. I try to be as consistent as possible for you guys because I know it's important and it drives me crazy uh, when I listen to a show and it's every week and then there's a holiday and it's not there, especially if I have to work. So that's one thing I can pledge to you that I will be consistent week after week. I have been this entire year and that's going to continue, you know, unless something, you know, dramatic, drastic happens, which you will be made aware of if that does happen. So I really appreciate all of you listening to this show. If you're, if this is your first episode you're listening to, you've got a lot to go back and check out. And uh, I stand by all of it. I really feel proud of what we've done here. Um, I do want to get some business out of the way before we jump into my interview with Dessa and finish this year out. Uh, we are on peerpleasurepodcast.com. We are on Instagram. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We're on all the social media platforms. And we have now launched the Peer Pleasure Pleasure Seekers Club Patreon. It's an exclusive Patreon club where you can get all sorts of bonus content, merchandise. You can you know chat with other members, and you can help support the show. Even if you just go and throw in two bucks a month, that supports the show in a huge way. You know that shows me that that uh, you know I'm doing my job here, that I'm providing something of value to you as well as to myself. I mean, I love what I'm doing and that's why I do it. I mean, the fact that you guys listen to it is just a huge bonus and uh, really fun to interact with you guys. Um, I've been able to take a lot of guest requests, make those happen. I've got a few more of those coming up, uh, which I'll reach out to those people and let them know uh, who I've got coming up as far as that goes. But if you join that Patreon club, you're going to be, you know, have access to our guest roster and you're going to have access to all that stuff. And that's a work in progress. It's live now. And we're working through, you know, getting a streamlined way to deliver that to you guys and make everything, you know, super awesome for the pleasure seekers as well as everybody else. So I really appreciate you guys listening. Big, big, huge thanks this year to Matt Carter, who, you know, hooked me up with Jabberjaw. Mike Mowry, who's been, you know, monumentally helpful uh, in you know, interjecting me into this scene and getting involved with the medium. Uh, all the guys at Jabberjaw, Lance Rowe, uh, who's done most of the artwork for the show as far as all the graphics and some merchandise. Uh, Wes Wooden Cyclops, check out Wooden Cyclops on Instagram. Uh, he designed the, the uh, Pleasure Skull, as I call it, the logo you see all over everything. Um, Susie Lee. I mean, we've had just so many people that are fantastic, so many people that, you know, uh, have helped out. Joe Simon is a producer, um, Bob from the Bob and Katie Show, Bob McKnight, 
uh, was doing show notes for us. I mean, just a huge, I could go on and on, but I'm not going to drag you through it any further. Um, so without further ado, let's get into the last episode of year one with the one and only Dessa. Swimming in the snifter, pretty as a picture. Don't get it twisted, man, her bite is a bitch. You can name, you can keep her, but take care when you feed her. You never can take a fight out the fish. Chomping at the grill, but never want to still sit. You can test my metal with a magnet and some tin sniffs. Intense, all I see is canines and some wingtips. Pilot pit and pocket, I'm riding with things and intense. Around here, we don't like talk of big dreams. To stand out is a pride that can see. To aim high is to make waves, to split scenes But that's not what it seems like to me Cause I wanna try, I wanna risk And I don't wanna walk, rather swing and miss I'm not above apologies, but I don't ask permission Got a lot of imperfections, but I don't put my ambition in them Hey, Dewey, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Awesome, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show, I really appreciate it. I know your time's limited, but I appreciate you making the making the time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, Dessa, welcome to the Peer Pleasure Podcast. Can you hear me okay? I can, yeah. Okay, perfect. I'm doing a mobile mobile setup today, so I want to make sure everything's good to go on your end, so... Um, sure. Well, I wanted to start. I know you've been interviewed a million times and everyone's talked about your past and everything else. Uh, I'm really interested right off the bat uh, after just, you know, doing some research and, and sitting with this for a little while. Um, your performance with the Minnesota Orchestra. Um, I'm really fascinated to see how that came about and uh, how that went for you as far as, you know, that's one of the biggest things you've ever done and uh, quite an undertaking, I would imagine. Yeah, I was I was invited by the Minnesota Orchestra to collaborate about a year and a half before the show actually went down. So I got a call from Grant Meacham, and uh, their artistic director there. He asked if I'd be game to put on a full-length show, and um, I knew that that would involve fully orchestrating a lot of my stuff, which means that while my songs right now are usually built you know, from rap beats, it would mean that uh, an arranger would essentially deconstruct all of those songs so that they could be played live by you know, between 75 and 80 musicians on stage. Mm-hmm. So I said yes, and um, I worked with the arranger and composer Andy Thompson to do those arrangements. He was killer. He, like, burned down every song and then reconstructed it. <laughs> and, um, and then as part of the evening, I also threaded through kind of like a, a monologue that was a send-up of a TED-style presentation. So I told the story of trying to fall out of love. Um, and as part of that process, I imaged my brain in an fMRI machine and shared those images on stage. Okay. I felt great about it. I thought it was like, yeah, I thought it was, it was one of the shows I was most proud of. So I was proudest of having done. Got it. And, that, and that's, I mean... The videos I was able to see was, you know, cell phone video on YouTube and things like that. I mean, you could really feel a lot of power from that performance. Even from a cell phone video, I can only imagine what it was like, you know, in the room. But, uh, I mean, being able to evoke that much, 
you know, emotion and feeling and, and breaking the songs down like that. I mean, did you find a new love for your, your music, breaking it down to that basic of a level and then building it back up again? Um, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I like my music pretty well. <laughs> so, so I probably found a new, a new love and regard and respect for the work of the people with whom I was partnered. I mean, watching, watching um, Andy Thompson, the arranger, make the decisions that he did and watching the conductor, his name is Sarah Hicks, watching her, you know, garner the, the talent and energy of 75, 77 people on stage. Um, mm-hmm. Those are skill sets that were fresh to me. And so watching them at work was, uh, <laughs> was impressive, occasionally humbling. And in the end on stage, you know, I got to be part of the odds that inspired it. Really Man, I, uh, I can only imagine. And, and so, I mean, once you got, I'm sure you were nervous as hell, but once you got on stage, did all that go away, or was it, I mean, you could really enjoy the moment? Uh, I would say half and half. I, I tend, I do, I do stay a bit nervous on stage. Um, so I think when I began performing, my assumption had been that after I do this long enough, I won't get nervous, but now I think it's just that I've done it long enough that I'm pretty used to performing nervous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. And I wanted to touch on, too, I mean, you've really established a brand for yourself that, I mean, it's very far-reaching. I mean, going from hip-hop to the solo stuff to branching out and doing these talks, doing the orchestra stuff, I mean, how far, I guess, how far out did you look as far as wanting to establish yourself more than just a hip-hop artist? Um, I think I think some of it is... is reactionary or, or no that's not quite the word some of it is responsive and that I'll be lucky enough to get a call from somebody like Grant Meacham at the Minnesota Orchestra mm-hmm. and um, and we'll jump at the opportunity that it's posed it's not the case that I had like a five year plan to get on stage to get on that particular stage mm-hmm. um, but the way that I've experienced this career it would be tough to map a five year plan. You can have some big goals, and and I do, but part of what's exciting, I think, is about meeting new people who have, like, a really different vision and a really different art form than than you do, and then figuring out how to get both of those talents, both of those visions, or both both of the excellences um, involved in a single project. So, whether it's meeting um, a woman in South Africa whose name is Hope Masika, who's this incredible Indira player. That's like the thumb piano. Uh-huh. Um, well, I would love, and I, and I think I send her an email every year being like, it's me again, we should collaborate. I have no idea if that will ever happen. But, um, but being open to those kind of collaborations, I think, has been part of the name of the game. And then uh, I'm a sucker for language, so almost almost anything in the language art, I, I do. I find interesting, um, you know, whether that means like a monologue or, or a choral piece mm-hmm. or, um, or a little tiny play. Like I like all that stuff cause I, cause I love language. Yeah. And that's one thing I've noticed too, is, is you're, I mean, you're quite the wordsmith, extremely, you know, well-versed and the way you can, you can inspire images. I mean, in me, myself, um, listening to your music, I mean, I, I can just picture things in my head and kind of see, I mean, and it's probably, of course, it's my own interpretation, but, um, 
you know, there's not a ton of people that can really do that and almost make it like you're reading a book, you know, with your, with your, um, with the written words. I mean, you know what I mean? Where you're listening to it and then the music comes along with it as well is also, you know, part of the picture, but you don't write any of the, the actual music, uh, it's all done by like Laserbeak and those guys, right? For as far as your your actual, uh, as far as the music, yes. The li- the lion's share, or the uh, you know, at least eighty percent, I'd say, um, eighty five even, is composed or produced by somebody like Laserbeak or Paper Tiger mm-hmm. or Steve Water, or sometimes like the members of the live band that I toured with um, for my last record. Mm-hmm. So I performed with like a a really charismatic bassist named Sean McPherson. And um, and a guitarist named Dustin Kyle, who both might you know be playing a loop, right? You know, we just kind of be playing a riff, yeah. And then we try to figure out how to transition that into a song. Some of the songs, usually, usually it's more the ballady stuff. Um, some of the songs I've written myself, and then had a lot of, and then asked other musicians to help me arrange. So songs like uh, "Sound the Bells" or uh, "It's Only Me" or "Annabelle." Those were songs that I'd start on piano. Mm-hmm. And then some of the help of my musician friends to help me uh, arrange. Okay, and sound the bells. That video that accompanies that song. I mean, I had the record before the video, of course, but watching it with the video really just completely changed the way I felt about this. I mean, I love the song to begin with, but it just it took me deeper, and it was just so uh, intense. I mean, just the 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 images you create through these videos. I mean, most of the videos are just, I mean, fantastic uh, accompaniments to the music. And, you know, that's what I love about your stuff. The solo stuff especially is is just how all-encompassing it is. Like, from the visuals to the album art to uh, the music itself is just one giant piece. It's cohesive. It's really impressive to see. I mean, and, and it's something that I, you know, really enjoy about what you do. Um, and you have so many well, things. That, that video, um, you know, that video was, uh, it's creditable to the director, uh, it'd be coming, Daniel Cummings, and he was, uh, he sent me a, like a screenshot of an underwater museum, and I had no idea what an underwater museum was, mm-hmm. but he found, uh, he'd been on location for another project. And he's learned about this installation of a set of human forms, a set of statues, um, on the ocean floor. And they were shallow enough that you could dive to them. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not a natural swimmer, but I was just so taken with these images um, that I, I did some practicing, like, at my, the pool at the YWCA by my house to try to learn how to swim. And, and then more importantly, <laughs> to try to learn how to think so that I could, so that I could get low enough on the ocean floor to... Um, to be filmed among these statues. So, yeah, I thought, I thought it was striking stuff as well. I mean, and also, um, credit to the, the guy who actually makes the statues is this really clever conservationist, uh, who, conservationist, who tries to reroute tourist traffic away from, um, threatened reefs by creating these installations so that then when people are on vacation for a week and they're going to go scuba diving or, or snorkeling, instead of, um, stressing out the already fragile reefs with a lot of traffic and leached sunscreen and um, and you know errant things um, that the tourists instead visit this installation on the ground. And his name is Jason DeCaris Taylor. Total badass. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, thank you. I I thought, thought 
I thought it was a pretty cool video too. Sure, absolutely, and then the work that went into it too, having to, and that ties into as well having the, the, uh, always trying something new, you know, and and not being afraid to do that. Like you're saying, learn to swim, and and uh, for this video, like who knew, who knew, you know, uh, you would learn to swim for a music video. You know what I mean? Like versus for any other reason. Right. Like I'm gonna go scuba diving on my own, so I need to get certified for this. It's, Nope, I'm going to do this for a music video. I mean, that's that's always right. something interesting. But um, so I wanted to talk about too. I mean, back to writing. You know, writing for the the page versus writing for the stage. I mean, do you see a big difference in that, or do you write the same way as far as when you're writing? You know, uh, do you ever sit down and write a song, or do you just sit down and write? And then if it becomes a song, it becomes one. If it becomes oh. a poetry, poetry. Well, sometimes uh, when it, when I get a little fragment of an idea. Um, a little phrase or an image. Mm-hmm. I'm sometimes not exactly sure which pile that's going to go into. If that's going to be poetry or prose or a song. Mm-hmm. Um, if it rhymes, then it's already sort of suggested itself <laughs> as, as a lyric. But um, but sometimes it's a matter of scope. So if I have a long argument or a long story to tell, usually that's going to be a usually that's going to be prosaic, you know, that's going to be a, a short story or an essay, mm-hmm. if only because to investigate it through music would take a 19-minute song. Um, other times, if I feel like, you know, the the core of this idea isn't a narrative, and it's not intellectual in any way, um, it, it's a big value of it, um, is just that it sounds cool, or that it feels... Um, like a like a strong and compelling image, mm-hmm. then it's more likely to land in like the poetry, um, the poetry pile, which tends to allow for a, a little bit more impressionistic understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So length and type help me figure out what sort of idea is which. I think that a lot of my essays and my art could be told on stage as monologues, and I do that a lot. But um, but not a lot of my monologues or essays could easily be transformed into songs because it, I, I do you, the kind of concern that you have with like how a word sounds and, um, and even just the fact that you're like when I tell stories on stage, pacing is really important and, mm-hmm. and pacing is much harder to control when you're working in a in a beat that is you know is metrically regular. You can't. You can't just pause as long as you want without sounding weird when you come back in. Sure, without and then, you know, like with the Doomtree stuff, like a lot of stuff is you know played live, you know, on those pads, and everyone, you know, I'm sure everyone knows where everything's coming in and everything's very worked out. I mean, one thing I noticed, I was, you know, I saw a video uh, a while back. You did like a, uh, it was on YouTube. I forget what it was for, but you were talking about like a previous career doing, uh, working in the medical field, uh, doing technical writing. And then you did music in between, um, and then had a guest, and it was on stage. And it was really when you're talking about you know pacing, uh, that's something I really saw there, where you're able to pause and take a break and let something sink in as you're speaking, versus being able to do that you know in mid song. Yeah, yeah. I think I think to me it feels like I really like the idea of being able to express a particular. Let's say you're working on a particular show, and you know what kind of theme or what kind of vibe you want for the mm-hmm. show. 
I like the idea of being able to um, maneuver between disciplines. So this part of the show would be best served by a funny little story. And this show would be best served by a song. And this part of the show would be best served, I don't know, by a puppet show. So for me, it feels like the vibe and the theme, those feel, to a, to a person in the audience, and to maybe even the performers on stage, those feel more cohesive and more, like, definitive of an, of an evening than whether or not you happen to be singing a sad thing or saying a sad thing. If the reaction is still tears, let's say, um, then, it's, then it's of a piece. Whereas I think sometimes we get a little distracted about what counts as what discipline. Is this a monologue or is this a, is this a slam poet or is this a spoken word piece? Um, and we get also concerned about genre. Does this count as freak folk? Does this count as R&B? Does this count as rap music? Like, I don't think that matters all that much to the listener's experience. I think that matters a lot more to the retailer's experience. Okay. I don't I don't try to sweat that too hard on stage. Okay. And, I mean, you do a lot of collaborating, so you, I mean, um, you've been with Abby for a long time uh, for the solo yeah. stuff and, uh, you know, with Doomtree, of course, a giant collaboration. How how is it different for you, you know, being on stage when you are rarely on stage alone versus with someone? Do you feel any different? Do you feel uh, aside from basic, like you know, these two parts are coming together as a performer? Do you feel much different on stage alone versus with just say you and Abby doing like an NPR thing, or or uh, you know, do you feel more exposed? Do you feel more nervous? Yeah, I mean, I would say that if I were to if I were to list my strengths, like a short list of my strengths. Uh, I don't actually think collaborator would, would make the top five in that, um, and that I, I do have a hard time letting go of control. So, so I'm sort of a, I'm sort of a fussy <laughs> collaborator. I feel proud of the work that I've done with, you know, with, with people like Doomtree. Um, but I, it's not, it doesn't come effortlessly for me. So I think that. I'm rarely on stage alone, in part because I don't have the skills to be on stage alone. So if I were an excellent pianist, or I was like an amazing guitar player, <laughs> then I might have accompanied myself, you know? Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe ultimately it's lucky for me that I'm not, because then, um, because then I have to, to learn, and also to benefit from, like, um, tastes and styles that, that aren't natively my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in Doomtree, coming into Doomtree, that was already a already a, a collaboration going on. Thanks. I mean, how much control did you have to begin with? Was there was it something that uh, you kind of discovered uh, after you know becoming established with Doomtree and branching out on your own that you had trouble giving up the control, or you know how was that coming into that where it's already a, a controlled environment? A thing, yes. I don't mean like I'm controlling the guys. The guys are their own bosses and sure, their sure. own masters. But I mean like um, when I write a song for my own record, I'm the only one who has to like the lyrics, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if I'm going to partner up with other people to try to write verses together, we're going to have input at least on the chorus. So, um, so you can imagine, like, I get more control when I write my own song. I'm more comfortable that way when I make the best music as a listener's, um, that's just for each listener, I guess, to decide. But, yeah, working with Doomtree, you know, I find it, challenging, which embarrasses me a little bit, because the guys seem to come a lot more naturally to them. Um, but I'd say collaboration is something that um, that I enjoy, but, but I do I do also find it to be challenging, because I'm, I'm reluctant to 
Terminig absolute power. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and, I mean, so many personalities there, too, and, and I mean, a lot of big names and, and uh, you know, it, it, it's just a, a fantastic outfit. I mean, and one more thing on that, on that note, um, you know, watching the, the coverage of the orchestra event, they all. It seemed like the media seemed to say the the orchestra partnering with a rapper. Like, how do you feel about the media portraying you as just a rapper when you have so many different sides uh, beyond that? Does that make does sure. that bring anything up with you or? You know, and it's the opposite. It's probably that if anything, I think I'd be guilty of over representing myself as just a rapper because I'm so damn proud of the of the work in that in that genre. Um, and also, probably the media says that, too, because it sounds more interesting, right? Because they're like, can you believe it that an orchestra partners with a singer? And they're like, yes, I can believe that. that <laughs> so um, so probably it was also to showcase the most unlikely aspects of the project, because those are going to be um, the parts that are most immediately interesting to the casual user. Yeah, yeah, the mass... The mass uh the mass mass media puts out whatever's you know the most extreme that makes sense um i just wasn't sure if it was something that maybe like ah really come on guys you know like i've got so many different right in the right fire. right but uh sure well i think i think generally like i think generally i'm i'm so so like i'm proud i'm proud of the stuff that i've done in rap and also because that's where i i kind of started musically, mm-hmm. that it makes sense that sometimes that's, like, if people only have, you know, it would be asking a lot for a reporter who doesn't know me. They say, okay, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I want you to write interdisciplinary artist that is, like, a singer and a monologue and a poet and, and a rapper. Like, that's just sort of like, honey, I'm sorry, you know, you haven't heard that much ink yet. So, so I'm not too, I'm not too finicky about that designation, casually. Sure. <laughs> Yeah. Well, we have just a couple minutes left, and I do appreciate the time. What are your future plans for the rest of the year? Do you have more music coming out, uh, more collaborations, more uh, another book? Uh, what do you have coming up? Yeah. Yep, I'm working. I'm just finishing now, actually, a book of essays. Okay. It'll be my first full-length and a proper um, selection to be published on Dutton. And I am in the midst of writing my new record. Um, which will be out next year. Awesome. I can't wait to hear it and check out the book. Thanks. And uh, like I say, I really appreciate the time today, Dessa, and and, uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, good luck to you, and and, uh, we'll chat soon. Thank you so much, Dewey. Thank you. Have a good day. Have a good one. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dessa. I know it was a short one. She is very, very busy. We tried to make the most of it. Uh, and squeeze an interview in in between some other stuff because, like I say, she is absolutely swamped with the new record and everything else coming out. Really appreciate her coming on, and it was really fascinating being able to talk to her and ask her some questions, and, and uh, hopefully you guys got some something out of it as well, not just myself. But we are on purepleasurepodcast.com. We are on Instagram. We are on Twitter. We are on all the socials. Definitely check out the Pleasure Seekers Club on Patreon. Go support the show. Help us keep the lights on. Help, you know, everything. Everything helps. We got all sorts of costs for the show. And we like to cover that, you know, through listenership. And, uh, I mean, just to to be able to provide more content to you guys, establish, a you know, a club where we can have, you know, a lot of conversation and all that good stuff. So I'm not going to ramble on much further. I am going to throw a few clips at the end of this episode here. 
from our first year, some of the the funny, interesting clips, uh, kind of a montage for you guys at the end here. So definitely check check out all the past episodes if you haven't already, and get ready for year two. Year two is going to be fucking awesome. We are starting out year two with Brendan Canty from Fugazi, as I said earlier. If you missed it or skipped past it, Brendan Canty, the drummer for Fugazi, the second member of Fugazi to be on the show. Uh, I'm very proud to say that, and it is a hilarious conversation. He's an absolute genius, and I'll I'll get into that next week as you guys are are listening through. Uh, but stay tuned for some clips from the first year, and as always, we'll see you on the radio. You know, whatever, even just someone coming to your shows, it, like we've always been a very hands-on band and wanted to like be connected with people that like what we're doing, mm-hmm. and so. Now that that has become that much easier, and everyone does that now, even with like a Twitter account, it's like, dude, I, I could tweet fucking Brad Pitt, you know, and I, like I might have to tweet him one thousand times, but they're, like he might actually get back to me, and yeah. that's insane. Yeah, or, or not for me, like I wouldn't tweet Brad Pitt a thousand times, but like, oh, you fucking I, should. I remember, for instance, like, yeah, report <laughs> dude, back I, to me on this. I want to see this. <laughs> Now you have nothing. You're you're a clean slate right now. You have you have time to tweet Brad Pitt. Yeah, I'm gonna tweet him a thousand oh, times. If you can just tweet experiment. him sound bites, little sound bite snippets but of like, his insane guitar. Yeah, I was born in East Germany. That's the former communist part of Germany. And when I was born, um, Germany was still united, uh, uh, divided, and I experienced the wall falling at age 10 as a kid you don't really question it when your mom makes potatoes every day um i think i did i started doing like some softcore type of uh you know fake sex things picture wise where it was like for um adult magazines but it wasn't really it wasn't really like a a sex scene it was just kind of staged but i looked at it as a job i Mm -hmm. never i never really compared my personal life with what i was doing on camera like it wasn't to me this didn't was not connected it was more like the teenage and you were either the teenage girl that looked 12 and was really slim or you were the you know the bombshell blonde with fake tits and stuff and i was yeah. none of i was i was totally different and we we happen to have very talented people and so if he's ever in a room it's just he's one of the guys that they'll let through and that's kind of the main thing with being uh, a rock and roll photographer or or anybody like that. It's just there's a lot of people with cameras, but just some people you don't want to let into the back where where most people would say, "Hey, no pictures." Yeah, McClay's one of those guys. Like, oh no, he can take pictures of anything. Yeah, and so we're very open about all that stuff. You know, we tell him no matter how much I don't care if somebody gets in a fight, if somebody's bleeding, if somebody's crying, if somebody's naked, whatever. We just we just tell him to shoot the shit out of that. We want all of it. Yeah. Thing that's so honest like particularly i can't remember who shot it but there's a there's a picture of kurt cobain crying after a show because his head in his hands he's just bawling and somebody just snapped a shot right in his face and the balls that that takes and how cool it was that i have seen it it just i can stare at that picture forever man when i first met john i didn't like him and he didn't he didn't like me and we didn't and because i worked at starbucks and he would come in and and uh he asked me if I play drums. Like, oh yeah, I play drums. Like, well, what do you what do you think of Dave Grohl? This is like this is ninety two. I love Nirvana. They're awesome. Dave Grohl's a great, uh, good drummer. He's like, he's Dave Grohl's a fucking fantastic drummer, best drummer in the world right now. And I go, well, 
take it easy, okay? Uh, he's not the best drummer in the world right now. He's the best rock drummer in the world right now. I go, no, probably not. He's like, oh, what, are you better than Dave Grohl? And I go, technically, chop-wise, yes, I'm better than Dave Grohl. And he got all mad at me. And we had a screaming match. She's like, you probably suck. And I go, fuck you. And he, oh, this is at Starbucks, right? And, and he goes, fuck you. I go, fuck you. And he, he left. He came, he, so every time John would come in the restaurant uh, or go to Starbucks, he'd Darren. And I go, John. And I go, as a matter of fact, I can. He's like, he threw his hands up in the air. He goes, Darren Pfeiffer, best drummer in the world. <laughs> that is clear. Like most everybody I know who's ever loved music, loved music at age 15 or 16. In fact, maybe that was the time in their lives where music was the most um, important to them. And yet, at those ages, they weren't able to go see the very bands that changed their lives. The first time Black Flag came to the East Coast, um, we all went to New York to see them from D.C. And then they came down here and played in D.C. and they stayed uh, in my family's house, my parents' house. My brother and I still lived at home. And so we had all Black Flag sleeping like you know, on my floor. And um, they stayed for a couple of days. We had a really amazing time with them. Um, you really haven't lived till you come upstairs and you see your mom in a robo making pancakes and smoking cigarettes together. And it's a porn director named Ian Mackay. And he does so-called alt-punk porn. Uh-huh. You know, like it's like basically people with tattoos fucking, you know. So when we wrote Full Collapse, I remember I was convincing the guys we should drop out of school and do it for a year. Mm-hmm. Just a year. We go back and finish school. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, hey, a year. And so we <clears throat> hand the record into victory. And we get a call from one of the higher-ups there, and they're like, no, it's okay. It just doesn't have any singles. They'll be like, you gotta meet this band thrice, and the West Coast are starting to do stuff. They're not, they don't sound like you, but, like, you guys are such similar people. Like, they're, like, you're both quiet, not, like, at all what you'd expect from your band. Mm-hmm. Um, and... What we didn't know is at the same time people were like, <clears throat> you guys got a tour opening for Thursday. You've always at least portrayed yourself as a very happy, upbeat person. Generally, I am. Have genuine... you ever seen BoJack Horseman? Yes. Okay, the cartoon? So, yes. Yeah. Do you know the character Mr. Peanut Butter? Yes. My friends joke around that I'm Mr. Peanut Butter. Like, just generally pretty <laughs> excited. I'm like, just smiling and friendly. Smiling and friendly. Yeah, yeah. That was my, it was my idea. So the first time, the first, for the first album cover, I just thought she just took these pictures and I had them and it was easy. And then I thought well, we, I had the idea for each cover that had her pretty much each cover. I had like just an idea for it in my mind. Like I saw it in my mind. I was like, it would be cool to have you like naked in the woods running around. <laughs> and she would, she was like, it kind of ended the idea of like trying to make sure it would be tasteful. Of course. Sure. I was with Sayosin and I remember being in the band at the time and like being like, like going everywhere with people and people being like, who are these like SoCal dudes? You still have this gratitude, this this gratitude for everything. Yeah. And I think that that's something that I would not have had if I hadn't gone through that shit with, with, with heroin. Yeah. That's so that, that makes, that makes it all worth it. In my opinion, I like freedom. I worship freedom yeah. amongst a few other things. Though I had wanted to be out of the city, the reality of being um, so far out in the sticks uh, was was startling. Um, it was just a, a really drastic change, and it came at a time that a lot of other big changes were happening for me. ISIS was ending. Uh, Hydrahead was about to go through a big transitional shift. Um, 
and uh, I think all of that sort of coalesced into this really big moment of self-realization that over my first winter in Vashon was kind of terrifying to, <laughs> to be to be basically alone and confronted with myself. No one else can deal with your shit for you. So basically I was confronted with a lot of stuff that I had been shoving aside for a long time and, and combined with the isolation of being on Vashon, it was, it was a big slap in the face that ended up being a really good thing. Uh, with Henry, we were just it never ended. I mean, we went everywhere. One of the first uh, shows we did, we went to Portugal and opened for Metallica. That's what it was like. It was like, you know, we were loading in for that show in Germany and uh, there was a voice behind me that said, hey, are you guys Black Flag? I love Black Flag. I love your music. Oh, you're the guitar player. You're so great. And like, oh, at no. first I was smiling and kind of like going along with it. And then after a while, I think it was Matt Techie, our drummer at that time, he said, you're just being a dick. And he's like, yeah, you're just being a dick. And this French label put out a Mother Superior record, 13 Violets, and it had this like glowing review in Rolling Stone. No, it was the Sin album. The Sin album was reviewed, and they called us Led Zeppelin with a full erection. So <laughs> we went to Lanois' place, and like he's going, oh, my God, these guys are incredible. you know. So it was just all like, you know... So did they have they had your name and everything when they talked to you? Yeah, you register. So so they could say, hey, maybe this guy looks cool. This guy looks cool. We could put him on. Right. Or, or do you, is it random? It's. I think they actually like go through and if they talk to somebody and they seem like they're engaging, they're like, all right, let's put that guy on the list. Yeah. Bam, you know, just keep going. Yeah. Oh, I want a game show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How about you? Yeah. Yeah, I woke up again. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Wish I haven't, but yeah, <laughs> shit. Like I said I, I grew up a hardcore uh, punk rock kid, so if anything, it's more punk rock to be like, you know, if I don't need to fucking act like every other metal dude in the band and like you know look tough and check me out, bro. You know, I don't need to. I can do whatever the hell I want. Have you ever tried? Have you ever tried to play a show no, serious, because, like be, just fucking rock out? Because it feels completely unnatural. Just to, just to see it. Yeah. Just to see it. Like, <laughs> it what the fuck's going on with Adam? He's serious, you yeah, know? It feels completely unnatural to me. I'd just be like, this is, this is odd. Well, I think it was, uh, it was a combination of things. I think, first of all, like, I don't know. I, early on in life, I felt like, I felt like a freak. Hmm. I don't think when we started, it wasn't a matter of like, because when you start playing music, to be honest, you just do it because of the music. Yeah. There's like agenda. There's no plan to take over the world. Like you start and you're like, maybe, I mean, I remember starting Refused. And I, I mean, David said, maybe we could play a few shows outside of our hometown. Maybe release a 7-inch. That'd be rad. Mm -hmm. We still have not released a 7-inch, which is kind <laughs> of a testament to the failure of our band. But <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but when you start playing, you just, you just play. I don't think there's, there's a motive to, uh, like, oh, let's sing in English because then more people will, will get it. However, when we did the last Invasion record, mm -hmm. before that, we did two records in Swedish. You know, I worked on, I was on The Simpsons, and I worked on all sorts of shows, and every time I come up with an idea for a show, I was always thinking, what's a good idea for a show? And it would it'd always be a, a variation of like, what if my wife and I had, you know, what if our kid was a robot or, you know, whatever. <laughs> I never did that. And then uh, quite literally one day I just thought like, well, what if I took 
uh, a horror movie and just put my dad in the middle of it. <laughs> because my father, as I've described him, uh, I've described him in the past as Archie Bunker without the elegance and sophistication. <laughs> and he really is. And when I was, when we were kids, my brothers and I used to joke because you know, we all watched monster movies growing up. Yeah. Like we used to joke that if our dad was in one of the planes that was shooting at King Kong, <laughs> that he would break formation and go check the score of the baseball game. I just remember, like, I didn't know any, I didn't know any other labels, but I remember being on tour and seeing going to Tooth and Nail and the president of the label, Brandon. I remember just being like, "Hey, here's a demo tape from my other band that I sing for." And he kind of looked at it and was like, oh, yeah, thanks, man. And I think, like, I think he kind of told me later on, like, in his head, he's kind of thinking, like, why would I want to listen to a band where, like, a guitar player in a metal band sings for? That just sounds like a, you know, a disaster. But to, like, I think he, you know, I guess he must have ended up listening to it. and And I think, like, I remember... You know, we made our we we made that record. We made the Zayo record in Little Rock with Barry Pointer and Jason Magnuson. And I, when I was down there, I was like, "Man, it would be so cool. Juliana Theory could make a record here with these guys. I think it, like it could be awesome." And hi, it's Joanna Angel here, and you're listening to the Pure Pleasure Podcast. Anyone who thinks this is easy is an asshole. You know, <laughs> <laughs> anytime I do anything, I just I don't know. The minute I like. The camera goes on and my makeup's on and my outfit's on. I'm just I'm just kind of like ready for anything. I don't know. Like I it's <laughs> fun and I want to do everything I, that my, my body can physically do. You know, yeah. like I just I don't know. I don't my emotions don't get lost in there. I don't I don't know. It just doesn't. It's weird because it's real and it's not real. Like I I just don't. I don't feel like whatever I'm doing is going to like, it's never had some like mental effect that lasted on me. I think Joanna's tapped out. <laughs> it's like, I've never seen this happen. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. <laughs>
Hey, this is Doc Coyle, host of the X-Man Podcast and part of the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network. The X-Man Podcast is where I talk to professionals in the music world and other creative industries about the challenges and transitions of leaving monumental ventures. This podcast is for those passionate and driven 20 to 30-somethings at a crossroad trying to figure out what's next. Listen and subscribe at jabberjawmedia.com.